Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles, if you'll turn there. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you a Bible. Matthew chapter 16. Thirteen through verse twenty. Matthew sixteen, verse thirteen through verse twenty. Please follow along as I read. Verse thirteen. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, we come into your word with utmost humility as we recognize that what is what is revealed in this text is, uh, is divine. We also recognize our own frailty as human beings. God, that we cannot understand anything on a spiritual level. We cannot do a spiritual work inside of ourselves unless the Holy Spirit move. So we ask, God, that you would teach us this morning Teach not only our minds, but teach our hearts. I pray that you would convict us, comfort us, encourage us. We pray, God, that we would experience Jesus this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the Garden Church's foundation? What is this church's foundation? Who is the builder of the garden church? With what power does the garden church operate? There are plenty of wrong answers to those questions. And I wonder how you might answer those questions. Who is or what is the foundation of this church? Well, some might answer, 
think community is the foundation of this church. Or I think diversity is the foundation of this church. Or I think, I think coffee is the foundation of this church. All of those are good things. But ultimately, they are wrong answers. Who is the builder of this church? I'm afraid some of you might say the evangelists are the builders or the elders are the builders or Joel is the builder of this church. Again, ultimately wrong answers. With what power do we have? What is our power? Some might say, well, our power is in the belief that we can serve the city. Our power is in the belief that people can change and we can help people. Those are all ultimately wrong answers. Why is that? What is the common thread with all of those answers? Somebody help me out. Exactly. It depends on us. It depends on us. You know, Psalm 61, which I read just a minute ago, is a psalm that I often go to in my morning devotional times. I will wake up and I will be feeling the the vulnerability and fragility of life. And Psalm 61 is a psalm that I often find comfort in. And when I read it, it it, it says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer from the end of the earth. I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. A rock higher, stronger than I. Now, in the ancient world, a High rock is synonymous with security. If you are uh, in in a low valley in the ancient world, you are vulnerable. And friends, family, we live in a world of vulnerability. I mean, I don't know if you feel it as much as I feel it. But we live in a world of fragility and vulnerability. I mean, you can just drive down the road and, and, you, and you see a car accident and occasionally you see an ambulance there and occasionally you may have even seen in times past a body that is covered and you recognize and you remember and you realize in that moment how fragile life is. And we feel it, don't we? I mean, we wake up and we're worried about finances. What is that? Well, it's, it's ultimately a worry about death. Not being able to support ourselves. Pain, decay. The problem with any one of those answers that I previously gave you is that they are rooted on a human being. They're rooted on us. And if the hope for the church is founded on a human being, then ultimately we are sitting at a very low, uh, uh, low point. And we are very, very vulnerable. Listen, any institution that is built with human strength and human wisdom, will eventually end. The United States of America, all 50 states, the most powerful country in the world, will eventually be recorded only in the history books. It will come to an end. Corporations, Starbucks, popping up on every corner, all over the grocery store, and 
airport, Starbucks will eventually file for bankruptcy and will close up every shop. Walmart will one day not even be remembered. I, I can only imagine like hundreds and hundreds of years from now, just some, some specialist on the economy of uh, uh, economic history is talking about this, this, this store called Walmart. It was such a powerful store at one point. And it's just forgotten. Every institution, every club, the Freemasons. Fraternities and sororities. All of these institutions will eventually end. Friends, listen, I want you to hear this and understand this. The church is the one institution in all of the world, in all of human history that will endure. And I want to talk to you today on this theme, the enduring church, which is the title that I put in the bulletin, but actually I want to uh, I want to even change it and tweak it a little bit right now because the more I study, the more I meditate on this, the, re- the more I realize that the church is not only an enduring church, or uh, 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 we are not only an enduring church, but we are also a victorious church. The reason that the church ultimately endures is because the church is ultimately victorious. So I want to talk to you today then on this theme the victorious church. Now we come today to this epic and central passage in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And this is at the very core of what's going on in Matthew. Let me just remind you a little brief overview of of what's happened so far in this book. Matthew first introduced the king. Here comes the king, a babe in a manger. He grows to be a man, and he is the king. And the king announces his kingdom, and all who repent and turn from their sin and trust in him have access into this kingdom, and the king speaks. Matthew 5 through 7, we see the king's sermon. And he shows what the kingdom life is like. And then from that point on, Matthew begins to, uh, to show us all of the signs of the kingdom. And John the Baptist comes, and John says, before his death, he says, Are you the Messiah, or should we wait for another? Meaning, are you Elijah, or should we wait for another? Matthew is then showing us all of the signs that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is the true one who can announce this kingdom and bring it about. The book goes on then, and it turns to all the different kinds of responses. So we've got the responses of, of, uh, of the skeptic, and we've got the, the responses of, of those who doubt, and we have the response of those who are just disinterested, and the various kinds of people as, as the seed is sown, and there's some that shoot up quickly, and, and you think they're a Christian, and they're growing, and then they just wither out because they're in the stones. And then others, you plant the seed, it's hard hearts, hard ground, nothing ever takes root. But then finally we see these people of faith. Now Jesus is doing something with these people of faith. Remember, there's the king and the kingdom, and now he has these people of faith. Who are these people of faith? This is what we see in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Jesus is announcing something new. He's announcing something that we call today church. He's announcing what this 
the foretaste of this coming kingdom looks like right now. He's announcing the, the birth of this and what it's going to be like to be in fellowship and in community with one another. He is turning his attention right now to the church. Now, where does he do this? Look at the text. Somebody answer me. Where does he do this? You see it? First verse, chapter thir- or verse 13. Caesarea Philippi. Why does Jesus teach his disciples about the church in Caesarea Philippi. What do we know about Caesarea Philippi? Well, Caesarea Philippi, first of all, was named after the Caesar, Philip. Caesarea Philippi was a pagan city. Caesarea Philippi would have actually been a city in which the disciples may have never been to. It's not, it's not a place that good uh, Jewish little boys and girls would go. If your mom caught you heading towards Caesarea Philippi, it would not bode well for you. So Jesus says, hey, I'm going to teach you something. And he's walking with them north of Galilee now toward this, this place, Caesarea Philippi. And at some point it must dawn in the disciples, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. Why are we going to Caesarea Philippi? Well, let me tell you what they would have seen when they got there. In Caesarea Philippi, this notorious town, there, was, there would have been the remnants of a sanctuary built by the Canaanites years before for Baal. Now, the pagan kind of worship continued there, and it became an epicenter for now, the, the worship of the Greek god Pan. So the Greeks came along, and they built a sanctuary for Pan. Why? It's because there was this, in, this natural wall in Caesarea Philippi that was massive. And there was a hole right in the middle of the wall, a cave. And the cave was deep, and it was believed to be, by the Greeks, a bottomless pit. And water came out of all the crevices of this this wall. Water for the Greeks came from the underworld, from the spirits. What they believed was that this cave, this bottomless pit was, in fact, an entry point to all of the spirits of the underworld. They actually believed that this was the home for the Greek god Pan. Pan is the, the, you know, the, the flute player. Looks kind of cute, right? He wasn't cute. They believed Pan was horrifying. Pan, the Greek god Pan, was responsible for all of the scary sounds in the, in the forest. One historian and theologian writes that, that, that nothing would have conjured up more fear among the Greeks, among the ancient people, than this place in Caesarea Philippi. It was known as the Gate of Hades. Horrifying. Let me just briefly pause right there. I wonder what I wonder what wall or cave is in your life, meaning I wonder what horrifies you. I wonder what uh, you, you, you might gaze upon at times and you just shudder with the reality of, of how fragile life is. Uh, you might shudder at the reality that death is like 
like right here, whispering in your ear. You can feel it. With every pain in your body, you feel death. Every trip to the doctor, you are reminded that you are ultimately dying. I mean, all that we face in life is really all about death. It's as if if we're just wrapped in death. And we can't go one day without being reminded of death. Well, here at this place, according to the Greek pagans, the very gate to Hades, Jesus is going to use this as a powerful object lesson. And Jesus is going to teach them something about the church that will forever transform all that they understand. The church, we see, has more power than anything death can throw at us. I want to look at this text. There are four things about the church here. Four things that, that make it this in, not only an enduring institution, but a victorious church. Victorious over the powers of even the gates of hell. The first thing is this. We see that there is this unusual revelation. Unusual revelation. We see it right here as Jesus gets to this place, Caesarea Philippi, and in verse 14, he asks this question. Who do people say I am? He's beginning his, he's beginning his lesson. They probably just pulled out their lunches. They see the cave in the background. Who do people say I am, Jesus asks. Now, Peter, remember what Peter, he's, he's the first one to jump out on the water, right? Well, he's also the first one to jump out at this question. But before he does... They have this conversation, and they, they, they say to Jesus, they say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah. Oh, now, he, they're referring to very specific answers. So John the Baptist would have been who? Do you, re, do you remember who believed that Jesus was John the Baptist? Herod, remember? John the Baptist raised from the dead, Herod believed. Some, some believe that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others think you're Elijah. So this would be those who believe that Jesus is is great, but he's not the Messiah. He's a precursor to the Messiah. Others think you're Jeremiah, which, which we're not exactly sure why they would have thought that, but Jeremiah was considered the prophet of doom, so this could have been the naysayers who were just passing him off as he's the prophet of doom. Plausible answers, right? There are all kinds of ideas out there as to who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? You might ask people in your your class that question. Who do you think Jesus is? It would be interesting to see what kind of answers you get. Look, human wisdom, human knowledge and, and history, we can come up with all kinds of creative ideas as to who this Jesus figure is. He's a prophet, said Muhammad. He's the greatest teacher ever, said Gandhi. Who is Jesus? Who do people say that I am? Now, here's where Simon, who becomes Peter, by the way. So when I say Simon, no, I'm talking about Peter. Here's where Simon kind of jumps out on the water again. Jesus turns to them, 
and he says, okay, who do you say I am? So you have all of this human wisdom out there, all of these creative ideas as to who Jesus might be, but who do you? As a disciple of Jesus, who do you say he is? And friends, I want to ask you that question. Who do you say Jesus is? I understand what they think Jesus is, who they think, but who do you say Jesus is? Not just who do you think I believe uh, Jesus is, but who do you say Jesus is? With your heart, with your mind, and with your life, who do you say I am? Now, Simon jumps out on this water, and Simon replies in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ. Everybody say Christ. Christ is not just simply Jesus' last name. But Christ, rather, is a title that is given to Jesus. It means that he is the Messiah. It's synonymous with the word Messiah. So whenever anybody who's critical of Jesus says, this man, Jesus Christ, you have to stop them and say, you realize you just confessed that he was the Messiah. You just confessed that he is the one hope for all of the world. We cannot hear the name Christ. We cannot say Christ without this recognition of what we are confessing through that word. Jesus is the Christ. He is. He is the Christ. Peter says, you are the one who was prophesied long ago who is to come. You are the king of Ezekiel. You are the the seed of Abraham. You are the suffering servant of Isaiah. You are the one who's to come in the line of David. You are the hope of all creation, the one through whom all nations will be blessed. You are the Christ. This is the first time that that has been declared in the Gospel of Matthew, and Peter here declares it. Now, how does Peter get to this point of declaring that Jesus is the Christ? You see, history books can teach you a lot. History books can teach you that Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809 and died in 1865. We can learn all about Abraham Lincoln. History books can probably teach you a good bit about Jesus, who this Jesus figure was, what some people believed him to be, what others scoffed at him for. I think evidence can even even teach you that Jesus died. I believe there's a, a good bit of evidence to say that Jesus is very plausible that Jesus rose from the dead. It is very hard to historically get around that fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You can kind of learn all of that with human wisdom. But you can't learn this with human wisdom. Look what Jesus says to Peter. Peter declares that you are the Christ, the Son of the living, living God. Jesus answers him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Where has Simon got this idea from? It's not through his own work, but it is a gift from God the Father. The Father has revealed to Simon that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Listen, there is no pastor, there is no parent, there is no human uh, individual, there is no human wisdom or human strength that can lead you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Only God can turn those lights on for you. 
Only God can wake you up to this reality that Jesus is the Christ. This is the doctrine of grace. What is Paul saying? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, he says that even though you were, you were dead, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for you, made you alive. What did Peter do to come to this realization that Jesus is the Christ? He did absolutely nothing. It was an unusual revelation. God just opened his eyes to this truth. And friends, those of you who confess Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you were once dead. But God, because he's rich in mercy and because he has great love for you, he made you alive. He did something in your mind. He did something in your heart. He gave you the ability to have faith in Jesus Christ. Is founded then on this unusual revelation far beyond anything that man can teach you. And Jesus then looks at Peter and he, sa- and he, he first renames him. He says, you're Peter. I'm going to get to that. He says, you're, you are blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Barjono. Look, what, how, how do we use this word blessed? Give me some feedback really quick. In what ways do we typically today use the word blessed? I'm blessed because of what? Money. Exactly. What else? A sneeze. That's right. Just sneeze a demon out. Bless you, child. What else? Success. You are blessed when you are successful. Blessed. Now, a lot of these things, I don't know about sneezing. I guess that's a blessing. Can you imagine not being able to sneeze? Woo. But these things are indeed blessings, right? But that's not what Jesus calls the blessed life. Listen, friends, what Jesus calls the blessed life is the life of the individual who is confessing Jesus as the Christ. That's the definition of what it means to be blessed. Oh, no, we just take that for granted. Oh, yeah, I get that. I know that Jesus is the Christ, but I'm looking at all these other things in life. No. You are, you are taking it for granted, and you have no clue the gift of the Father that has been given to you so that you might name Jesus Christ as your hope. That is the ultimate blessing anyone can ever receive. Yes, he's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. You are blessed. You have been blessed by the Father. For you have an unusual revelation that has not been given to all men. Secondly, the church has this unshakable foundation. It's built on an unshakable foundation. Frank Lloyd Wright, he was a uh, famous architect. He was years ago given the, the chance, the opportunity to design and build the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. Why was it a challenge? It's because this was a very, the very region of Tokyo that is known for earthquakes. So go ahead and build this massive structure in this earthquake-ridden area, prone area. So what this, this builder did, and it was remarkable, he built a solid foundation on top of 60 feet of mud. 
And the mud would then be a shock absorber. The mud would allow the, the uh, building to sway during an er earthquake and would absorb all the shock of an earthquake. Directly after he completed the building of the Imperial Hotel, Tokyo saw the greatest earthquake it had ever seen in 52 years. And while many, many buildings collapsed all around it, his Imperial Hotel stood firm. Listen, foundations matter, don't they? How many of you would buy a house with a cracked foundation? Some of you are saying, that's, that's exactly what I did. That's my problem. Foundations matter. Look at, look at what Jesus says here. Verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. Everybody say Petros. Petros, come on. Petros. This is, this is the name that he gave Simon. He wasn't born with the name Peter. Jesus renamed him Peter. By the way, it's a little sidetrack. Jesus has the power to, 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 to rename Simon. If I come along and, uh, and, and I meet somebody uh, and, and, I, and I give you a new name. You say, what? All right, Andrea, today your name is Sally. How many, Sally? You've got no right to rename me. No, Jesus does. So, so Jesus looks at Simon with his confession, and Jesus gives him a new name. And he gives him the name of Petros, or little stone. You are this rock. You are, you, you, you are a stone. You are Peter. And then he goes on, he says, look at, look at the text. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, who is the rock? Who is the rock? God? Any other thoughts? Uh, who is the rock? All right. Who is the foundation of the church? Now, some, all right, the Catholic Church would say Peter is the rock. He would say the, the person Peter uh, is, is the rock, and then they would deduce from that that he's also inerrant and all of these other things. He was the first pope, and then anybody who's in the line of Peter is also the rock uh, on which the church is built, which gets all convoluted in the medieval era, and you've got, like, all these different popes. And today, we, we don't, we've got a, a pope, but honestly, nobody knows if he's even in the line of Peter, all right? So who is the, is it Peter himself? No. Well, what, well let's, let's think of it biblically. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of who? It actually says that the church is built on the foundation of the uh, prophets and the apostles. So could it be that this rock is the apostles? So the, the apostles are the, the bedrock of the church. But even there in Ephesians 2.20 it says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So he's part of the foundation at the very least. But then we go on in, in 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 11, says that we are to never lay any foundation which already has been laid, and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians is, is very clear that, that Jesus Christ is, is the rock. Jesus Christ is the foundation. So who is the rock? Is it Peter, or is it all of the apostles, or uh, or is it... Uh, is it Jesus Christ himself who is the rock? The answer really is all of the above. The answer is all of the above in this sense. Whoever declares that Jesus Christ 
is the son of that declaration right there is and, and, and contains the strength and the power on which every community is ever built on which the, every faith community that is on which the church is built the rock is the confession that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord. And whoever makes that confession then has this kind of foundation. I like what Martin Luther says. He, he says everybody who confesses Peter's confession becomes a Peter and becomes a sure foundation. It's not because of Peter or the apostles or because of you. It's because of who you're confessing. You're confessing the rock. You're confessing the foundation. You're building your life upon Jesus Christ. Listen, all kinds of foundations fail. The greatest of romances fall apart, and we see that love is ultimately a cracked foundation. The greatest of all empires eventually come to an end. Kids in the room, you know what it's like to wake up scared in the middle of the night. Adults in the room, you know what it's like to wake up scared in the middle of the night to feel vulnerable, to recognize that our foundation is cracked, to recognize that I need a foundation, I need a rock that is higher than I. You know the parable of the, 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 the two houses. Two houses were built, one was built on the sand and one was built on the rock. The floods and the storms, the rain, the wind came, and the house that was built on the sand was what? It was swept away, it was demolished, it was destroyed. But the house that was built on the rock stood firm. What do we learn from that parable? What we learn is that trials and tribulations are coming. And if you're seeking to build your life on the foundation of sand which according to the scripture is anything other than the rock of Jesus Christ. When the trials and the tribulations come, your house is going to be swept away. And the ultimate trial and tribulation is death itself. Do you have a foundation that can withstand death? Are you built on this foundation? an unshakable foundation. Thirdly, we see that there is this unfailing builder. So the church has an unusual revelation, an unshakable foundation, and an unfailing builder. My wife used to live in Lake Worth, Florida. And when she lived there, I uh, did an internship at the church that she grew up at in Lake Worth. When I lived in Lake Worth for that summer, I remember there was this house right around the corner from the church, a big, beautiful house. Uh, that was, I would say, about halfway finished. They were working on it. The house was covered in Tyvek. You know what Tyvek is? Any builders in the house? It's that green, it's the green stuff that they put on the outside of a house before the, uh, the siding is, is placed on it. So you've got this, this house that's sitting there. I remember uh, I finished the internship. We moved to Maryland. And about a year later, we went back and we visited Jess's parents, and I was driving down the street, and I saw it. There's that house, and it's still sitting there with Tyvek on it. Wow, they are taking, some, taking their time with that house. Went home, came back the next year. That house was still sitting there with Tyvek on it. This happened, honestly, three or four years went by, and that house was still sitting there, slowly starting to decay. 
Uh, I finally, after about four years, asked Justice Dad if he knows anything about it. And uh, he said, yeah, they ran out, the builder ran out of money. I would imagine that that house is standing there today with Tyvek, still wrapped around it. Listen, human builders uh, will fail, will run out of money. If you, ever, if you own a house, if you ever have a builder do some work on it, most likely you're going to have some issues. What we have with Jesus Christ is not only a rock, but we have a builder. And we have an unfailing builder, a builder that will continue to build this church beyond every single storm that will ever come our way. Look at it. He says, I tell you, you are Petros, Peter, and on this rock, I, who? Jesus, I will build my church. Let's break that. Jesus will build it. Jesus is the builder. He will build what? church. The church is what he's working on. Not our own personal evangelistic project over here. I will not build my my Christian ministry over here. I will not build my Christian salon over here. I will not build all my parachurch, my nonprofits. I will not build the One Hope ministry. I will not build campus ministry. Jesus is working on one thing. He's building the church. I, Jesus, will build the church. Whose church is it? Whose church? Come on. His church. My church. Not Joel's church. Not another pastor's church. Jesus will build my church. Now, does Jesus say, I will build the white church? or I will build the black church, or I will build the Korean church, or the Hispanic church. No, Jesus said, I will build my church. Do you see where I'm going with this? We are part of something so bigger than what you see and and, and feel today. Our local church is being built by Christ who owns it, and Christ is working on this church and every other church. What this means is that no matter what you are called to in life, whether you're called to a certain job or whether you're working in a certain parachurch ministry, you're working uh, with some evangelistic outreach team, all of your life is really centered around the building up of God's church. Even as we talk about within our own church, the One Hope Ministry, what it looks like to, to do development. Well, this is, this is still connected with, intimately with the church. It's, it's to edify and build the church. When we talk about campus ministry with what Montrell is doing at Coppin State. This is ultimately about work for God's church. We have, an, we have a builder that is, that is unfailing that is doing something far beyond than anything we can ever do. Listen, we can be faithful. We can serve. We can speak. We can share the gospel. But only Christ can do the work of building the church. Only Christ can do the work of conversion. Only Christ can take dirt and turn dirt into into beautiful 
building blocks that is fit for the temple. This building language is temple language. God has always been about a place. The tabernacle was built by two men in Exodus. The tabernacle eventually became uh, outdated once Solomon built the temple. Solomon built this wonderful, glorious temple, but even that temple was destroyed in 586. The second temple was then built. But the second temple was destroyed in AD 70. How is it possible that God is going to build a temple that will endure all storms? How is it possible that God is going to build a, a house for himself in which he will dwell in that will that will never be destroyed friends it's because he's building as first peter says a living house you according to first corinthians you are the temple of the holy spirit you are the temple and that's a you individually and that's a you plural as we come together as a local church, we experience a foretaste of the glory that is heaven in which the temple of God will become global and we will experience God's presence for all forever and ever. God is building through Christ the church. And it will remain. And he will finish the project. Your hope is in this builder. Listen, we have so much fear. So much fear of like, what if, what if this happens politically and, and it hurt, hurts the church? You know, the, the, uh, the, the liberals will say, what if Trump becomes president? If Trump becomes president, then, then we're going to just have so many problems on our hands. The conservatives say, what if Clinton becomes president? Then we get a liberal Supreme Court. And now we've got problems for the church. Listen, we can talk about that, and those things matter. But nothing, nothing is an affront to the church. Nothing comes against the church in such a way that it could actually harm it. For 300 years, Rome sought to destroy the church. For a thousand years, Satan sought to destroy the church through obscuring it, uh, the gospel in Latin and through indulgences and a perversion of the faith. Today, there are, are all sorts of supposed threats to the church. Friends, listen, there is no threat to the church. We have a builder that will finish the job. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in, an, in, a, in a president or in a Supreme Court. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, our builder. Lastly, we have here an, unlimit, uh, an unmatched power. We have this unusual revelation, an unshakable foundation, an un, unfailing builder, and we have power that is unmatched in this world. I think one of the most dramatic redemptive acts of God was, is seen uh, in the history of transatlantic slavery. Think about this with me. You had white people, Europeans, Spaniards, who perverted the scriptures, I believe under the temptation of the enemy. And with the perversion of those scriptures, with the perversion of this faith, condoned 
a slave trade across the Atlantic. You have Africans ripped from their motherland and brought into some of the most horrific kinds uh, of, of environments that we can ever imagine. Listen, I believe that, that during that era, Satan thought he was winning. I mean, uh, Satan was happy with the slave trade. Satan was happy with the way that he had convinced all of these uh, Europeans and Spaniards to, to warp and, 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 and change and pervert the holy text of God. He was happy with what was going on. He was happy with harming an, an entire continent of Africans. Yet, I want you to see this. Here we are, 150 years later, since slavery has been abolished in America. Here we are, a slap in the face to the enemy. A slap in the, in the face to the enemy as slaves were able to get a... Uh, get a copy of God's Word and they were able to read it and understand that what they're being taught is wrong. Look, I'm reading this stuff. I'm reading like all these old Christian uh, uh, slaves uh, documents and they're talking about how the slave master just doesn't understand the Scriptures. I mean, Satan had to be going crazy with this. This isn't what I planned. And then white people who come to, on their knees in re repentance and and now here, a, a, a multicultural church, a slap in the face to the enemy. Spitting at the devil. Here's my point. Satan cannot stop or destroy the work of God. Satan does his best. Satan does his worst. He tries very hard. And God takes the worst of what Satan throws at us, and he just simply turns it around, and we slap Satan in the face. Look at the text. We have this power, this unusual power within this ecclesia, within this church. In verse 19, first he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we're going to talk more about that in two weeks. So I'm going to pause the keys discussion because we're going to pick that up in Matthew 18 where we see the keys applied around this, uh, this uh, concept of, of the uh, purity of the local church. But backing up to one verse, verse 18, we see the very center of the power here that the church has. I tell you, he says, you are Petros. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now remember, they're standing at this object lesson, the, the, this, this gate of Hades, and I would not be surprised if Jesus lifted his hand toward the gate. As he says, there's nothing that will come against this church. Now the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, that, that word gate right there is attached not to the kingdom but to hell. So this is referring to the gates that would supposedly surround hell. They, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word prevail means uh, withstand. The gates of hell will not withstand the force of heaven. Now what is Hell, it is ultimately the curse. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They were received the curse. You are now going to die. Death, hell, eternal separation from God. The opposite of life. The opposite of being blessed. 
And we feel it all around us. We feel the power of hell all around us. As our bodies decay, we are reminded that we are under the curse. And without Christ, we would remain under the curse forever and ever and ever. Yet what this is saying is that there is this power in this confession of Jesus as Christ, in this ecclesia that Jesus is building, there is this power that will attack hell, and the gates of hell will not withstand the attack. Which means that we have the power to rescue lives from death. We have the power to see someone who is destined for an eternal separation from God through sharing this confession of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus. We have the power to see them changed, rescued. Hell cannot stop us. We will attack the gates of hell, and they will not withstand the attack. And there will be men and women who are rescued from the grip of hell. Now, how does Jesus do this? Look at verse 21. I'm going to skip forward to next week's text. Verse 21, we see that Jesus himself says he's going to die. He's going to be killed you see it right there? And he says, on, on the third day, I will be what? Raised. How is Jesus going to give the church the power over death? Well, he does it through entering death himself. He does it from the inside of death. He takes on the curse. He takes on hell. He takes on the wrath of God. He takes on sin in his own body on the tree. And Jesus dies in our place. In the place of all his people, he dies. And he's buried in the ground. And three days later, he is raised from the dead. And with this power... The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks into the hardest heart, breaks into the toughest neighborhood, breaks into the life of the individual who is sleeping around trying to find their identity in a, in a lover. This breaks into a marriage which smells like death. The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks into death all around us and rescues us. Oh, I was dead. I was dead. I was spiritually dead. I had no hope. But God, because he's rich in mercy and because he is uh, abounding in love, he made me alive. You were dead, and he made you alive. He has given you a foundation, and he is building you. He's turning you into a precious stone that's fit for the temple, a living temple. And he will continue this work until it is finished. We sing this song, Long My Imprisoned Spirit Lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I, I woke 
and the dungeon flamed with light. And in that moment, my chains fell off and my heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. And can it be that I should gain an interest in his love? Amazing love. Amazing love. Empires come and go, the church endures forever. Celebrities come and go, the church endures forever. Trials and tribulations will come into your life and you will feel the pain of death all around you. And friends, the church endures forever. Satan deceives and he does his work in God's church, yet the church endures forever. Signs of death are all around us, yet the church endures forever, and the church is victorious. Are you sharing in this victorious church? Is this your story? Are you part of this? Do you have this foundation when you wake up in the middle of the night? Do you have this kind of hope? Are you, is your life built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ? Are you a living stone being brought together with his body? Cry out to him. God, give me faith so I might see. Confess Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And as the lights turn on, Get up, rise, go forth, and follow him. You know, one application that I might leave you with would just simply be this. Are you committed to God's local church? The local church is an expression of the global universal church. Are you committed to actual flesh and blood people? Friends, these relationships, this love, this message, this family is the only thing that you have that will last forever. Well, let's take our hope in the fact that Jesus is our foundation. He is our builder, and he will not stop working in you until his work is finished. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us as we seek to understand what it means to be freed from the terror of death, as we feel the, the reality of death wrapping around us, we ask that you remind us that we have this rock that is higher than I. For you are our refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. God, we ask that you would let us dwell right here forever. Dwell in this tent. Dwell in this tabernacle. Dwell in this temple. Dwell in this church. Dwell among your people. God, may your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven, and may we dwell with you there forever. Oh, God, let us take refuge under the shelter of your wings. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.